Searching for extraterrestrial gas and Percy's path ahead. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Last year, scientists found traces of phosphine, a gas linked to organic life on Venus. Now scientists are using 50-year-old data from a probe that went to Venus in the 1970s to confirm it's the real thing. It turns out you can see something in there that is best explained as phosphine. We'll talk with planetary scientist Paul Byrne about the back and forth of the findings and how digging through a half-century-old collection of data could get scientists closer to confirming this stinky gas on one of our closest planetary neighbors. But first, NASA's Perseverance rover is hard at work exploring Jezero Crater since landing back in February. But the dune buggy-sized rover is about to get upstaged by a tiny helicopter. We'll talk with We Martians host Jake Robbins about the first flight of Ingenuity and the science mission ahead for Percy. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. NASA's Perseverance rover is on the hunt for ancient signs of life on Mars, and it's equipped with a fleet of tools to help uncover evidence of possible past life on the Red Planet. And while the thought of uncovering this ancient evidence is remarkable, the mission is about to be upstaged by a tiny little helicopter. To talk more about the first attempt at powered flight on another world and the rest of the cool science happening on Percy, we're joined by Jake Robbins. He hosts the podcast We Martians. Jake, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me again. So I was hoping to have you on and we would talk about the first powered flight on another planet, but it looks like we're going to have to wait for that, right? (laughs) We are, yeah. So NASA has been uh, deep into this deployment process for the Ingenuity helicopter. It's the first first ever to do a powered, you know, aero flight the way we we are traditionally thinking of the word flight uh, on another planet. So it's very exciting. Um, it's been a bit of an involved process. They're being very careful about it because they kind of only get one chance at this. So it's been we've been watching these pictures come down. The helicopter, which flies sort of attached to the belly of the rover, has now been sort of inching its way down. It you know fell down to about forty five degrees, and then they righted it, and then they drop it, and then they got to test the rotors out and do all these kind of pre flight checks. Um, but then they they encountered a problem. So uh, we were originally going to have a flight on Sunday. And uh, when they were doing their sort of kind of like a dress rehearsal, they're running through the the uh, the software to make it go through its paces and find out what's happening. They had a, a problem with a one of the transitions between like a pre-flight mode and a flight mode. And, you know, an alarm went off on the software and it shut down and they had to kind of investigate what was going on. So a spacecraft is safe. But as they did their investigations, they found out they're going to need to do a bit of a a long distance software upgrade. So not unlike when you have your computer telling you you need to get a security update, uh, Ingenuity needs one of those software patches as well, except this time we need to beam it over a couple hundred million kilometers. So uh, that's what we're doing right now. We're just kind of going through that process and waiting for some more information from NASA. Mm -hmm. When it does happen, tell me a bit about what we can expect. There's supposed to be a series of these test flights, right? That's right. Yeah. So the very first flight uh, NASA has said is going to be very conservative. So um, you have this, this, you know, this vehicle is about the size of a, a large drone. It's not unlike what a, a drone would be if you're, if you're familiar with those technologies on Earth. And it's going to go just straight up uh, a few meters, going to kind of hover in place, do a rotation. So it'll turn in place to turn around, take a couple pictures and then go right back down. And they're going to check everything out. So it's like a very safe way to test it out, make sure everything's working right. 
And provided that goes well, then NASA hopes they can go a little bit longer, you know, go higher, do a, a skew to the left or right and try and do some lateral motion and, and practice. Because that's the whole point of this mission is just to figure out if the technology works and how it works and what they can do with it in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's kind of disappointing to a lot of people that it's just going to do these these only flights and that's about it. Like you, you think you send a drone, it's going to be this buddy hanging around with Perseverance the whole time, right? <laughs> but no, it's, it's it's just to kind of pave the way for, for future missions, right? That's right. Yeah. And so the, that idea is not wrong. It's just uh, it's just not yet. So a lot of times with, with space technology, especially for things that you want to do at Mars, the iteration cycle is just painfully slow. You have to be very, very patient because you can only launch these things every couple of years. Um, you know, it's not it's not like when I write software on my computer and I can just write it, test it and go, OK, that didn't work or work and then move on to the next thing. And you got to wait long, long time between those things. So this is a technology demonstration. Uh, it is uh, a test. It's a, its purpose is just to see what works and what doesn't. Um, it's not unlike when NASA flew the very first rover, which was called uh, Sojourner. It flew as a technology demonstration, this little like RC car rover as part of another mission, as part of the Pathfinder lander. And it was not the main objective. It just sort of drove around on the side while the main mission did its science. But because of that demonstration, we were able to use that technology and make the Opportunity Rover and the Spirit Rover and the Curiosity Rover and the Perseverance Rover. So that's what we're hoping that Ingenuity does. This is the, the, the proof. And then later, we'll be able to make that one that flies along and helps the rover out and does all the cool buddy-buddy uh, spacecraft exploration. Mm-hmm. Now, when it does launch uh, or when it does take flight, are we going to be able to get some images or, or video of it or do we just have to we're just getting data from this what what are we gonna what, are we, what am i gonna be able to see jake we'll be able to see quite a bit so this is actually another exciting part about this uh this mission so the perseverance rovers uh instrument on the mast is called mast cam z mast cam z if you're a canadian like me and uh it's got video capabilities which is very exciting we don't get a lot of video from mars just because the the data is so rich and it's hard to get back we've got sort of some uh, limitations in how, how many of these ones and zeros we can send back through the orbiters and the antennas and all those things. And so uh, this is uh, one of those times where we're going to be able to get it. So they're going to take a video of it. They're going to be a little strategic about what comes back right away because, again, because of those data limitations. So we might get a few pictures at first, but over the week after the flight, we should be able to kind of get all the different data down, be able to put together a full frame video. You'll be able to see the, the helicopter go up, turn around, come down, all in one uh, frame, which is just, it's so exciting. I can't wait to see what this looks like. And this isn't even the main mission of Perseverance, right? This is kind of an add-on, a last-minute stowaway that got um, attached to this mission. Um, So, but but the main mission is to search for these signs of of ancient life on Mars. And some of those instruments are starting to come online on the main rover, Perseverance. Uh, Jake, walk us through what's been happening over these past few weeks to prep for the main science campaign for Percy. Yeah, that's right. So Perseverance is a, is a flagship NASA mission. It's a, it's, a, it's a very large mission with lots of instruments on this rover, and it's got a big job ahead of it. Um, and then the, the first, you know, one to two months of this mission are all about powering everything up. You go from this flight mode where it's traveling across space and this, this crazy landing sequence. And then once you get safely on the surface, you have to start checking everything out. So you fire on every instrument. You make sure it didn't get damaged in flight. You take a few pictures, take some data you know, practice getting that back to earth. Is your pipeline working okay? Okay, now do the next instrument and the next instrument. And you go through these kind of one by one. You try out the wheels. Does the rover work? Can you turn the mast around? Does the arm work? There's lots of the instruments are out in this kind of robotic arm on the rover. So you have to test out that. So a lot of just different checkouts. And 
again, because of that difficult cycle of iteration, getting this, these things back are not very quick. So every day you kind of do one little step and go uh, step by step. So, uh, so far, everything's been great. All the instruments are coming online. They're working awesome. Uh, we're getting pictures. We're getting data. Uh, the weather station's reading the temperature and the pressure and all those kinds of things. And so it's, uh, it's been pretty exciting. The most recent one was this uh, instrument called the remote microscopic imager as part of the SuperCam instrument. And it's this little microscope that they can also use as a telescope and take pictures of hills far away. And we're getting some of those data down now. And it's just, uh, it's really exciting. So the, the rover itself is in a slight pause right now while it helps the Ingenuity helicopter get its flight underway. It's kind of like this 30-day window. And then once the helicopter flights are done, the rover will proceed with uh, its science mission. Great. And and in the, about a minute we have left here, Jake, um, this isn't the only mission at Mars, right? I mean, this was this was the summer launch to Mars, the the spring landing to Mars. What else do we know about the the other missions that are are at the Red Planet right now? Yeah, it's a very exciting time for Mars exploration. We just had three different missions arrive there. So the United Arab Emirates have put the Mars Hope uh, mission into orbit. The Chinese Space Agency has put the Chunwen One orbiter into orbit, and they're sort of doing their checkouts as well. So Hope has gone through. Uh, some commissioning. They've changed their orbit. They kind of just got to their final orbit where they stay forever to do their science. And so uh, their science mission is beginning imminently. It should be within, you know, the week or two, they're going to start the regular operational science data flow. So that's very exciting. Uh, the Chinese mission is in a bit of a scouting mode right now because it has a rover with it as well. And that's still in space. It's kind of in orbit around Mars with the orbiter. And they're doing some scouting for their landing sites to try and find out the best place to put this rover down. And we're hoping that in a few weeks they'll be able to do that and uh, land on Mars for the next rover. Well, we've been speaking with Jake Robbins. He hosts the We Martians podcast. You can get it wherever you get this podcast or at wemartians.com. Jake, as always, thanks so much for bringing us up to speed on everything happening at Mars. My pleasure. Still to come, the back and forth on Venus's phosphine findings and the answers in 50-year-old data. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. Woman in Motion tells the story of how Star Trek's Nichelle Nichols changed the face of NASA's space program by recruiting over 8,000 of the nation's best and brightest, including trailblazing astronauts who became the first African Americans, women, and Asians to fly in space. Next week on Are We There Yet? A conversation with the documentary's director, Todd Thompson. Stay listening. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Last year, a team of researchers found traces of phosphine, a gas linked to organic life on Venus. Now, another group of scientists are using 50-year-old data from a probe that went to Venus in the 1970s to confirm it's the real thing. We're joined now by NC State planetary scientist Paul Byrne to talk about the back and forth of the findings and how digging through a half-century-old collection of data could get scientists closer to confirming this stinky gas on one of our closest planetary neighbors. Paul Byrne, thanks for speaking with us. Hi, Brian. Great to be here. So, Paul, we've, we've had you on before. We talked about this, this really cool finding of, of phosphine on Venus, um, and then uh, another group of scientists came through and said, wait, 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 hold on, it might not be phosphine, and now we've got another group of scientists that went through some 
archival data uh, from a mission some 40 years ago and said, oh, we actually might have found some. Uh, bring us up to speed. What's going on? <laughs> okay, so so broadly what's happening is this is how science works. Um, particularly when there's a big claim made, which we heard back in September of last year was that that phosphine, which is a gas that, that can be associated with biological activity, doesn't have to be, but can be, it's found in the, uh, the middle atmosphere of Venus, a few tens of kilometers up. Uh, that was not something I think anyone expected to find there. And so that discovery was met with a lot of fascination and interest, but also justifiable skepticism, right? Because these big claims require um, a lot of proof, and they are the kinds of things that people will hone in on quickly and, 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 try, and try and test. So we saw this first detection, and then we had, within a few weeks, a flurry of papers of people looking at the data themselves and then doing their own processing of the data to, to tease out. I mean, these, these signals, for example, phosphine in the Venus atmosphere, they are really hard to see. You've got to kind of you learn how to skillfully, artfully almost, tease them out of the data, the measurements you make. And so that led to some uh, criticism, I guess, of whether or not this was a real signal or, in fact, it was an, art, an artifact of how those data had been processed. Um, there was one group that pointed out, so, so the original detection made by Greaves et al. was published in, 20, in September 2020, uh, used two different telescopes. And so the first uh, study, or the first uh, critical study came out and said, well, you know, maybe this telescope didn't actually, you know, the data weren't processed properly. Um, but that led, that left the other one, you know, uh, uncriticized at that point. And then another study came out and said, well, actually the original telescope that was used, maybe it wasn't calibrated correctly. And, and then it turned out that the second telescope, which is the more capable one, the ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array Telescope in, in Chile, uh, it turns out that the the science the, the scientists who run that instrument, who run that facility, and they do some sort of pre-processing of the day before they release it to any scientists in the community, there was some problem in how those data were pre-processed. And so the folks at ALMA took those data back in and, and reprocessed them. And then the original reporting team took those reprocessed data, looked again, and said, okay, we still think we see phosphine, but now we see it at, at lower abundances than we originally reported. So this thing kind of goes back and forth, right? And then you had more people saying, okay, well, we've looked with similar instruments and we can't see it, or we've looked with the same telescopes and we don't believe your processing was done correctly. And so we kind of go back and forth. Now, this most recent discovery, and this will by no means be the last word on this topic. This study was done by a bunch of folks who went back to data, one of the few data sets we actually have from inside the Venus atmosphere. I think I said this to you, uh, when we last spoke with us last year, and I've said it lots of places, the phosphine question, one way or another, will not be definitively put to bed, one way or another, until we get into the Venus atmosphere itself with new instrumentation, with new probes. Right. So until then, we are trying to sort of piece all the sort of, you know, circumstances stuff together, try and make a, a sense of what we're seeing. But it turns out that NASA's Pioneer Venus probe flew through the Venus atmosphere in the 1970s. And so some folks, led by Rakesh Mughal, who's at... Um, a uh, university in, in California, basically went back and looked through those data and says, you know what, if you actually focus on the, 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 the small minor chemical species recorded by the Pioneer Venus probes that most folks so far didn't really ever pay much attention to, it turns out you can see something in there that they maintain is best explained as phosphine. Now, if that's true, and if this detection holds up, 
That means that we did, without really knowing it, detect phosphine in the 1970s in the Venus atmosphere itself, which would provide compelling support for the, the reporting of detecting it remotely from Earth as has been done so far. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the current state of play. But like I say, this is, there's no way this paper uh, by Rakesh Mogul and colleagues is going to be the end of it, the last word. So we're going to have to see how this plays out. Mm-hmm. I did my math wrong. Um, that's why I'm not the scientist. Um, and it was, it's been you know, more than 50-year-old data uh, from, from the Pioneer mission. How common is it for scientists to go back and look at historical data like this? Is, is this something that happens you know, in commonplace in planetary science, or, or is this kind of a, a new way to uh, kind of examine this whole phosphine saga? Yeah, I would say generally it's not that common for the main reason that most people who study stuff are funded on projects to look at relatively recent data. That's just the nature of the the job and the community. And, you know, going back through old data, you don't necessarily know you're going to find something. You know, Rakesh and colleagues figure this was something that was worth doing because of the potential importance of detecting phosphine. And I just want to step aside for a second and be clear that even if, let's say, we absolutely definitively confirm the detection of phosphine and we're not there yet, that doesn't mean there's life in the Venus clouds. It just means that there's unknown chemistry, which, to be fair, the original reporting scientists were very clear on. They were like, look, one, perhaps the best possibility they came up with was that it's biological in, in origin. But this really, more than anything else, tells us we just don't really understand the chemistry of Venus all that well. Um, but the, the idea to go back through old data, it's, it, it, you know, those data are available publicly. The problem is that it's a function of, you know, are folks paid to, to do this? And also in the case of this particular study, uh, these authors had to go back to one of the folks originally involved in that mission to learn from that person how they could actually pull, tease these data out. So nowadays, uh, NASA and the European Space Agency and, and space agencies generally are better at uh, describing the data they have and archiving it, making it publicly accessible. For example, just like an hour ago, I posted the first picture to Twitter that the Ingenuity helicopter has photographed because it's already on the internet because JPL's already put a press release out. So now we're used to getting these data really quickly. We can access them quickly. But some data from the 60s, 70s, 80s, it's still on magnetic tapes or it's not being digitized and centrally located. And so it can be tricky to go and find those data to say nothing of knowing how to process them and, and tease out what you want from them. So it doesn't happen that often. There is, however, one example that I can think of that I came across a few years ago that I thought was fascinating. So you might know, and your listeners may well be familiar with the idea that Enceladus, this very small moon of Saturn, has these jets of water ice that blast out from the South Pole, from the South Pole, this little moon. And this was a massive surprise and a discovery made in 2005 by NASA's Cassini mission. And Cassini ended up flying through these plumes and detecting not just water ice, but also little tiny little particles of rock and organic compounds. So Enceladus is a fantastically exciting and tantalizing place where we might find, let's say, alien life. Um, But the discovery of those jets from Enceladus really surprised everybody. But it turns out that one of the voyagers in the 1970s actually photographed Enceladus's plumes. But in this photo, and I can't remember, I saw this on the internet a few years ago, but in this photo, it's got one of the other Saturnian moons in the foreground. And in the background, there's this little kind of white splodge of Enceladus, which itself is a small moon. This, the photo wasn't a picture of Enceladus. Enceladus happens to just be in that image. And if you look at kind of the, the edge of Enceladus, instead of it being a nice circle, there's a little kind of weird splotch 
on one bit of it. And that splotch is one of the plumes. But it wasn't something anyone expected. And so it wasn't anything anyone noticed. Mm-hmm. And that kind of speaks to the value of going back through old data. It might be difficult to do, it might be hard to access, it may not have time to do it. But there is real value when you're able to, to go back to those old data, like Rakesh and his colleagues have done, to actually see, is there any evidence for this kind of detection in decades old data? And in this case, mm-hmm. it seems there is. You know, you bring up a good point in that these these researchers were looking to answer a specific question. So they're really, right. you know, there wasn't a reason to go back and, and look at this old data just, you know, just for fun. But, right. you know, I, I talked to um, the director of the Arecibo Observatory, and one of the things that he said he was working on is digitizing all of their archival data and throwing it through IBM's Watson to utilize machine learning to make these findings. Is right. that kind of the direction that that we're heading when it comes to all of this old data and can we answer new questions with it? I think absolutely we can. And I think this is a good idea for how we're moving things forward, particularly as we can start to harness things like AI and machine learning. Um, One of the things that NASA has in terms of its planetary science ecosystem, if you like, is it has something called the planetary data system. And the planetary data system is this complex interconnected set of nodes, which are basically just big servers at different universities and and research institutions across the the country. And these servers basically back up and store much, not quite all yet, but much of NASA's planetary science data. And the the simple reason is we don't know when there's going to be a question in the future that we're going to need to go back and answer with old data or, or look at old data to help answer or to test. We just don't know. It's the same with the Arecibo stuff. Going back and actually digitizing those data, putting them online, whether you, you run them through machine learning algorithms or not, they just become a resource that other people later on with specific questions that we can't even think of right now can ask of those data. It's a little bit like how only a couple of years ago, we opened some of the, for the first time, some of the Apollo samples that had been stored, closed, sealed for 50 years. And the reason is because over the last 50 years, we've been doing, you know, the, the amount of science done out of those samples brought back by the Apollo astronauts is astonishing. For a few hundred kilograms of rock, the, the, what we've gained has been really remarkable. But every year, lab technology and lab equipment gets more capable. And so by keeping some of these samples almost in perpetuity untouched until some new technique, new technology, new development comes on stream, means that we have the option to go back and look at those data basically with brand new eyes. And that is the idea of NASA's planetary data system. It's the idea of going through the Arecibo data. It's the idea of going through the Pioneer Venus data like, the, like uh, Rakesh Mogul and his colleagues did. So it's because we don't know what questions we could ask. We want to make sure we're able to keep these data available and preserved for future researchers. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the only way we will definitively know the presence of, of these, this phosphine gas in, in the atmosphere of Venus is if we send a probe there. Um, right. what, what does the future look like for, for that mission? And will we be able to get that answer anytime soon? That is a really good question. And the answer is uh, the future is uncertain right now. The last mission that NASA sent to dedicatedly study Venus was the Magellan mission, which launched in 1989 from the Space Shuttle Atlantis. So it's been over 30 years since NASA sent a dedicated Venus mission. There have been missions that have visited Venus since uh, Venus turns out to be a very useful gravity assist, gravity flyby place to visit on the way, on the way to somewhere else. 
Um, there have been two missions from the European Space Agency and from the Japanese Space Agency, respectively, to Venus since then. Only two in 30 years. Think of all the missions. We had three launched to Mars in July last year alone. Um, so the future of Venus exploration is uncertain. However, it is, I think, beginning to brighten. Right now, NASA has a competition for what we call its discovery program. NASA has a, uh, different types of mission as a function of basically budget and, and capability. And the discovery class missions are typically around about a half a billion dollars, which is a lot of money, is not that much money in terms of space exploration. Um, so these missions have to be sort of lean and very highly focused on specific science questions. And the way NASA runs these competitions, uh, which take about three years to play out, I suppose, is that um, proposing teams, which can be NASA centers or universities or research institutions, uh, put in these, these uh, proposals, which, which are huge. They're independently reviewed and, and, and uh, ranked. And then NASA down selects from maybe 16, 18, 20 proposals put in the first round, down selects to four usually, or five, in what's called step two. And right now there are four missions in that second down selected phase, two of which are Venus missions. One would fly a, a new improved radar to Venus to, to take measurements of the surface with radar, much like what NASA's Magellan mission did 30, year, 30 odd years ago. The other mission is called Da Vinci Plus. So that first mission is called Veritas. Da Vinci Plus is a mission that would actually send a probe through the Venus atmosphere, ultimately landing onto one of the older terrains on the surface of Venus. Now, I don't, I'm not involved in either mission. I don't know if Da Vinci Plus would have the capability of detecting phosphine. I also, the team had to essentially lock in their proposal before the phosphine discovery became commonly known. So I don't know how much they could kind of pivot to, to, to take on that. Uh, but as I always say to people, you know, we've sent a dozen missions to Mars, not because, not just because we love Mars, but because each mission builds upon the other. So it may be that Da Vinci Plus, if it's selected, let's say, and we'll find out the, the answer, the, uh, we'll find out what gets selected in, in June. That's the current date we're expecting. Um, it may be that Da Vinci Plus, which will fly later this decade, won't actually be able to detect phosphine because it won't have the capability to. That doesn't mean that we can't have, we don't have plenty to occupy us here on the ground beforehand. Additional observations from Earth will definitely help. I know that the original detection team, uh, Greaves et al., the, the folks who publish Nature Astronomy, were planning on using the SOFIA telescope, which is a joint uh, USA or NASA DLR, the German Aerospace Center um, project, which has a big infrared telescope at the back of a, of a 747SP. It's a bizarre looking plane with the door at the back. Um, SOFIA if uh, the team could get access in that and COVID through a spanner and that works, is the kind of instrument you could use to make follow-up detections as long as, as well as other instruments on Earth that could do that. Um, but ultimately, yeah, we're going to have to get to the Venus atmosphere and whether it's going to be DaVinci Plus or another mission that hasn't been proposed yet, I don't know. But this is the kind of thing we absolutely have the technology available right now for us to get there, to get into the atmosphere, to use a mass spectrometer, which is the sort of standard instrument of choice for this kind of test, and actually, you know, sniff the Venus atmosphere at around 55 kilometers and just see what's there. But there's no plan in the books as I speak for doing that, which means for the time being, this has to remain an unanswered question. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully we get some answers soon. We've been speaking with Paul Byrne. He's an associate professor and planetary scientist at NC State. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Brendan. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. You can also stay connected to the show in a few ways. You can do that by giving our Facebook page a like. You can search for Are We There Yet podcast. 
We're also on Twitter and Instagram. It's A-W-T-Y space. Are we there yet, space? Get it? Are we there yet? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty, and our intern is Kirk Churchill. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.